who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. You're listening to Inherited Danger, book two of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information, maps, and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Chapter 5 Expectations Can Be Surpassed Only by the Unknown Mariachi Omo Philosopher the boats that awaited them were far smaller than those from the ships, and the climb from one to another was treacherous. Vertuk nearly panicked as he stepped into the small boat and lost his balance. One man steadied him while others countered his movements in order to keep the boat from capsizing. Once those bound for the Greatland were aboard the small boats, they rowed into the narrow channels that snaked through the coastal marshes. Like a natural maze, there were many dead ends, but the experienced men navigated them without difficulty. As they glided across the still waters, no one spoke. The need for stealth understood. Mists swirled above the water, and clouds of biting insects appeared from nowhere. Kenward motioned for them to stay down and be quiet. Soon after, distorted voices echoed across the water and lights backlit the reeds and marsh grasses. The channel emptied into a large harbor, where several ships were moored. One of the ships was the largest vessel Katrin had ever seen. Dwarfing even the Jean warships, it made the slippery eel look like a rowboat. It was to this ship the men steered while trying to remain hidden. Deep shadows on the seaward side of the ship swallowed them. The ship stretched high above them. Once alongside it, the men laid down their oars, and a rope ladder dropped from above. Kenward silently instructed them to climb, one at a time, sending Katrin up first. The rope ladder twisted and turned in her hands as if it had a life of its own, and she made the climb quickly. The ladder took her to a small access door on the side of the ship, 
and she was glad she didn't have to climb all the way to the deck. Hands reached out and guided her into a lavishly furnished apartment. Her staff caught on the opening, and she struggled a moment to free it. Two men helped her in, then tugged on the ladder. While the others took their turns climbing, Katrin explored the spacious quarters, wondering to whom they belonged. It was certainly finer accommodations than she and her companions expected. Thick carpet, stitched in delicate patterns of flowers and birds, covered the floors. Unwilling to soil something so beautiful, Katrin removed her boots and walked around the room with them in her arms. Rich hardwood doors lined two walls, each with an ornate brass knob. Another smaller door stood on the inner wall. Elaborately carved tables and chairs dominated the interior. The chairs looked comfortable, covered with embroidered cushions of varied design, but Katrin was drawn to a set of shelves recessed into one wall. There she found a marvelous treasure. Books of every description. Leather-bound volumes with gilded titles and designs on their spines stood beside books bound in colorful cloth. One especially intriguing tome appeared to be bound in some sort of tree bark. Afraid to even touch the precious volumes for fear of damaging them, Katrin just stared in awe. She'd never seen so many books in one place. She heard the others as they entered the room, but she was engrossed in the titles of the volumes, many of which were in foreign languages. When she stood from examining the bottom rows, Kenward stood beside her. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pry, she said. I'm fond of books, and this is a wonderful collection. Think nothing of it. Those are here for your enjoyment during the long voyage. I fear you'll find the collection insufficient before your journey ends. Incidentally, you can put your boots on the carpet. It's not a problem, he said. Still self-conscious, she took off her jacket and laid it on the floor, placing her boots atop it. Kenward just chuckled and shook his head. He asked everyone to gather around. Welcome aboard the Trader's Wind. This ship was designed specifically for the long journey between the Greatland and the Falcon Isles, and she's well provisioned. She's still being loaded with the bales of dried herbs that are her main reason for being here, but she should set sail within two or three days. We were fortunate the rains delayed the harvest, or we'd have come too late. These rooms will be your quarters for the next half a year, and I'm sure you'll tire of them, but your attendant will try to make your stay as comfortable as possible. You must not leave these quarters for any reason. There are many merchants and their men aboard this ship, and we can't guarantee everyone's loyalties, Kenward said. Katrin was shocked to realize these elaborate quarters were reserved for her and her party. The others appeared impressed and pleased as well. You'll need to double up in the sleeping quarters, but you should find them well appointed. It's not often the trader's wind has this many discreet travelers in the same group. Kenward continued with a smirk. I'll meet with my mother and then return with your attendant. I'm sorry she won't be able to come herself, but we must maintain secrecy. 
The captain is rarely alone, and it can be difficult for her to explain sudden trips below decks. I'm sure she'll arrange for a meeting during your journey. In the meantime, I assure you that you're in good hands. After lighting a lantern, he left by the door that stood opposite the hatch. It opened into a dark and cramped hallway. He closed it behind himself, and they were left to get acquainted with their surroundings. The sleeping rooms were relatively large. Each held two hammocks and a feather bed, along with two wooden chests. They quickly picked their rooms. Katrin chose a room to share with Chase, and Strom and Osborne selected another, which left private rooms for Benjen and Vertuk. The arrangement suited them all, and they were still standing around when Kenward returned, since none of them was comfortable sitting on the furniture in their dirty clothes. Kenward knocked before entering, and was followed by a shy-looking young man who did not raise his eyes. This is Pelivore, Kenward said, and he introduced the young man to each individual. Pelivore's smile was warm and friendly. When he was introduced to Katrin, he shook her hand, only then raising his eyes to hers. Pelivore is fluent in High Common and John Lander, as well as the Old Tongue and High Script. He'll help prepare you to blend in once you reach the Greatland. He'll be your only contact with the crew and will visit you periodically to assist with any needs you may have, Kenward continued, and Pelivore nodded. I must leave you now. My duties await. But before I leave, I have joyous news. We got word that Fasha and some of her crew have survived and escaped during the destruction of the Jean fleet. The slippery eel will leave for the Godfist with the dawn, and we look forward to reuniting the stealthy shark with her crew. Her missive mentioned something about a group of fools stealing the shark, but I'm sure she'll forgive you he said with a mischievous grin. May the winds be fair and your journey swift, and I hope we meet again some day. He finished with a bow, and Katrin gave him a kiss on his cheek before he could escape through the hatch. He smiled and waved farewell. Pelivore was nervous and unsure of himself. He was slight of build and seemed to shrink under their scrutiny. But then he noticed Katrin's boots, sitting on her jacket, and he seemed braver for the sudden remembrance of his duties. I'll bring basins for washing. There are various articles of clothing in the chests. I'll be happy to care for your garments. Just leave them in a pile after you've changed, he said, nodding and walking backward toward the door. He slipped out without another sound. Within the chests, they found neat stacks of garments. Other than size, they were all very similar, made with a light, soft material Katrin could not identify, whose color ranged from white to tan. She raided the other chests for garments in her size, and she soon had an ample wardrobe stored in her chest. The others had similar success, but the search had left their quarters in disarray. The pristine cabin suddenly looked as if a storm had struck. Katrin was just about to start cleaning up when Pelivore returned. He carried four clay water basins, a large wooden pitcher, and a stack of soft white towels. He nodded to Katrin over the towels as he set them down. 
She was impressed he managed it all in one trip, but the mess also embarrassed her. Pelivore's face registered no surprise, though. He immediately began folding and stacking the piles of clean garments. Katrin rushed to help him, but he seemed shocked. Please, enjoy yourself. I'll just tidy these up. No need for you to bother with it. Would you like me to bring a wash basin into your room? He walked to the basins, filled one, and questioned Katrin with his eyes as to which room she had chosen. He placed the wash basin in the room she indicated, handing her three soft towels, and returned to folding the clothes. The others, except Chase, who waited for Katrin to finish, were pouring water for themselves as she closed her door. It felt wonderful to get clean, and the moment of privacy was a luxury in itself. She took longer than she should have, but she felt refreshed and renewed when she finally emerged. Comfortable in her snug-fitting trousers and lightweight shirt, she had no more qualms about using the furniture. Thanks for being quick about it, Chase said with a twinkle in his eyes and a playful swat at her shoulder. Wrinkling her nose, she kept him at a distance. He smirked and went off to get clean. Pelivore made several more trips, bringing them platters of fresh fruit, cheeses, and hard bread. Another trip yielded a case of deep red wines favored by Kenward and his family. The rest of the evening was the most pleasant time Katrin had spent in far too long. She was clean and comfortable, her stomach was full, and she was relatively safe. The possibility of being discovered gave her some anxiety, but it seemed unlikely, and she put it from her mind. Loaded with empty platters, Pelivore excused himself for the night, saying he would be back in the morning. No one said much for a while. They were content to relax or nap on the comfortable cushions and feather beds. Though Chase said he had grown accustomed to the hammock and retired to their room. Soon the novelty of leisure wore off, and the group began to systematically read all the books written in High Common. Katrin had been confused at first, having never heard the language she spoke given a name. Most nations speak High Common, Benjen said. In the past it was only the Jean who spoke Jeanlander, but their influence has spread and most people of the Greatland now speak both languages. Very few people understand the old tongue, or high script. Pelivore is quite a rarity. Pelivore would accept no credit for his accomplishments. He would only say he was fortunate to have received a fine education. His self-effacing attitude annoyed Katrin. She could not stand to see such a bright and talented person think so little of himself and she was determined to convince him of his self-worth. He seemed to sense her desire and was unnerved by it. She asked him pointed personal questions and watched as he squirmed uncomfortably while attempting to formulate suitably humble responses. Benjen and the others seemed to have sympathy for Pelivore, and they gave him advice on how to handle women. 
Their advice, however, seemed to disturb him more than Catrin's constant probing, and he often appeared to be fleeing as he departed their company, which seemed to amuse the men. Catrin enlisted Pelivore's help in getting herbs for Chase. His shoulder still pained him, and Pelivore happily accepted the task. The next day he arrived with a special tea for Chase. Catrin would have preferred the herbs themselves, but she decided to trust Pelivore's judgment. However, she kept close watch on Chase's condition, just as a precaution. We should set sail by nightfall, Pelivore said on his next visit, and excitement rippled through the cabin. The journey ahead would be long, and everyone was anxious to be underway. Pelivore became slightly bolder over time, and he spent most of his days helping them learn different languages. He concentrated on Jeanlander, which Katrin found quite easy to learn. She made a mental mapping of each word in high common and its Jeanlander equivalent. It was easier for her to learn proper sentence structure, verb conjugation, and other linguistic nuances when she already knew many of the words and their meanings. Still, Pelivore insisted she learn to speak in three different ways, depending on where she was. There are many dialects and accents, he said. If you wish to fit in wherever you go, you must not speak like a Southlander when in northern Mundelborough. Before long, Catrin could speak passably with each accent, but some of the others struggled. While Pelivore worked more with them, Catrin picked up a book written in Jeanlander, but found it depressing. The other Jeanlander books had a similar effect on her. They seemed to be written with the intention of making her feel inadequate and unimportant. More like propaganda than stories. They told her she should be thankful her betters were in control of her life and destiny. One in particular raised her ire. It was among the newest and most recently written. On the cover, an embossed image portrayed Istra and Vestra in their immortal embrace. The now familiar symbol of the Jean triggered her initial anxiety, but the words within infuriated her, defying everything she'd ever been taught. Descriptions of the statues of Terhilion made them sound as if they would be the salvation of mankind, if only they could be found. Everything Catrin had been taught about the statues portrayed them as terrifying weapons, disguised as gifts from the gods. What do you know about the statues of Terhilion? she asked Pelivore, but he seemed hesitant to answer. I know very little about them, he said after a long pause, but I know a great deal about what other people believe to be true. The statues are the source of the greatest and deadliest debate our kind has ever known. It would be presumptuous of me to offer any information as fact. Some believe the statues will destroy the world. Others believe just as strongly they will save it. I remain unconvinced by either argument. Another unanswerable question, Catrin said as she put the book aside. Disgusted with Jean Lender writings, she convinced Pelivore to help her learn high script. In ancient times, he said, the spoken language was much different from the written language. 
and even in those days, high script was understood by only a very small part of the population. We will concentrate on the written. He taught her how to form each of the symbols, and the sheer number of them, many of which were only slight variations of others, discouraged her. You mustn't make the strokes in the wrong direction. It distorts the character, Hellevor said as he watched over her shoulder. Over time, she came to see that it did. It took much longer for her to grasp the intricacies of the archaic language, and many of the concepts seemed foreign to her. But she persisted nonetheless. Once she gained a rudimentary understanding of the language, she attempted to read books written in high script. But they were confusing. Most contained accounts of family bloodlines and little else. Often, when she asked Pelivore what specific words meant, they were names of places, people, or families. The books written in High Common were a luxury. Most were tales of adventure and intrigue with happy endings. Nothing in them would help her prepare for the Greatland, though, so she pressed on with her studies. Strom and Osborne both gained passable knowledge of Jeanlander, but Vertuk steadfastly refused. He had tried at first, but no one spoke his native dialect, thus it was much more difficult for him to learn. Katrin doubted Vertuk would ever be mistaken for a native of the Greatland, and it probably didn't matter anyway. If they kept him disguised, perhaps he could be convinced to remain mute. Boredom plagued the men. They didn't share her passion for books and needed some other way to occupy themselves. Any chance you could find us some dice? Benjen asked Pelivore one afternoon. I suppose there's a chance. I'll make some inquiries on your behalf. In the meantime, he brought a new stack of books for their entertainment. Most were in high common but a few were in high script. Those in high common were soon divided among the others, and Katrin supposed more ancient lineage wouldn't kill her. She picked up a badly faded and ancient-looking tome and was pleasantly surprised to find it actually told a story. It was an impossibly difficult text to translate, and she often had to read a passage several times before she had even a cursory understanding of what it meant. Even when she thought she had made sense of something, she wondered if she weren't misinterpreting it. Based on her best guesses, she surmised that there had been two warring factions, the Ohm and the Golgi, and the Golgi were very powerful. Some passages seemed to indicate that the Ohm were forced to live underground in order to avoid the Golgi. This confused Katrin, and she was almost certain she was reading something incorrectly but she continued, hoping to find something to confirm or deny her assumptions. What do you think these two words mean? she asked Pelivore. I don't know what Golgi means. I apologize for my ignorance. This book is from the captain's personal collection, and it is probably the oldest text I have ever seen. Based on the ancient form of high script, I suspect this is a relatively recent transcription of a much older work. Some of the words it contains may have never been translated before, or may have no translation. 
The other word you asked about, om, could be similar to oma, which means men. That makes no sense either, unless the men were fighting women. Perhaps golgi is the word for woman, she said. I doubt that. Uma is the modern form of woman. Perhaps the old form was um, he speculated, and Katrin scanned the pages in hopes of confirming his guess. She was almost disappointed to find the word um used later in the text, since that bit of conjecture only made the rest of the puzzle appear more complex. She was almost disappointed to find the word um used later in the text, since that bit of conjecture only made the rest of the puzzle appear more complex. The further she read, the more confused she became, and she eventually set the book aside in frustration. Pacing the cabin relentlessly, she was like a caged animal. She needed answers, not guesses, but all she had were feelings and assumptions. Her confinement became like a tangible thing. It trapped her and prevented her from getting the answers she sought. She knew deep inside it wasn't true, but frustration overwhelmed her good sense. She stewed in her uncertainty and anxieties until she worked herself into a frenzied state. The men seemed to sense the rising storm, and they exchanged glances as if wondering where she would strike. Fears and concerns overwhelmed her, and she realized not all of the worry was hers. She could sense the others, and their moods were influencing hers, and she wondered if she could remain sane while trapped with so much emotion in what now seemed like small quarters. Pelivore broke the tension when he brought dried fruits and walnuts soaked in maple syrup. Everyone gathered around him and sampled the unexpected treats. The mood lightened, and soon they laughed while licking their fingers. Chase and Strom told tall tales along with more than a few true tales, and Pelivore laughed so hard he nearly choked. Chase patted him on the back, and as soon as he was breathing again, they launched into a series of humorous anecdotes that nearly killed the young man. Vertuk surprised everyone when he told the tale of an adventure with his horse, Al-Jadir. He was somber at first and Katrin could sense his pain, but she was also glad to know Al-Jadir's name. She would never forget him. He said that he and Al-Jadir were once caught in a tremendous sandstorm, a storm so terrible his love feared for his life. They limped back to camp, barely alive and bearing a mighty thirst. The first thing they came upon to drink were jugs of whiskey. Laughing so hard that tears ran down his face, he had trouble finishing his tale. He finally managed to tell them that he and his horse nearly drank themselves to death, and his lover threatened to leave him after she found him passed out, his arms around Al-Jadir. Pelivore fell from his chair, laughing. The sight of Pelivore enjoying himself lightened Katrin's soul as she felt somewhat responsible for his new confidence. It was Chase, though, who sent Pelivore over the edge. 
His rendition of their trip through the marshes sent Pelivore into fits. Even those who had endured those trials found Chase's comical reenactment too humorous to resist. When Chase got to the part about Strom realizing he had mistakenly used the leaves of a poison plant for personal purposes, Pelivore's eyes grew very large and he covered his mouth. He could not make a sound as he pointed and stared at Strom, tears streaming down his cheeks. Claiming his stomach hurt from all the laughing, Pelivore excused himself, and they were all sorry to see him go. His mood had been infectious, and they all felt better for it. The silence he left behind seemed to lend itself to quiet reflection, and Katrin found herself reviewing many of the good times in her life. The silence held as if everyone in the room were enamored with it, and Katrin wondered who would finally break the spell. All of them nearly jumped from their skin when there came a loud knock on the door just before it opened. A motherly-looking woman gracefully entered the room and addressed them. Greetings, friends. I'm Nora Trell, captain of the Trader's Wind. I welcome you aboard, even if it is a bit late, she said as she looked each of them over, and she smiled brightly when she got to Benjen. Ah, so there's a storm cloud aboard one of my ships again. Benjen, you scoundrel, it's good to see you again. Benjen approached her, and they exchanged a brief hug. This one nearly let my Kenward and your father get him killed, she said while pinching Benjen's cheek and arching her eyebrows at Katrin. Kenward has said many a time that sailing with Benjen was like sailing with a thunderhead. I'm guessing it's still true, she said, and laughed as Strom and Osborne nodded vigorously in agreement. Benjen shot them a good-natured scowl. But Nora looked at Benjen seriously. I still owe you a debt, Benjen Hawk, for helping to keep my fool son afloat. I would repay that debt now, she said, and she pulled a small bag from within her stout robe. An assortment of brightly colored dice rolled out when she emptied it onto one of the tables. Benjen sucked in a breath, for those were not ordinary dice. Each one was carved from a different type of gemstone, and they sparkled in the light. The faces of each die bore detailed designs, along with the etched value of that face. They ranged from four to eighteen sides, with several variations of each. Katrin didn't know the value of the stones themselves, but each of them was a work of art. Gauging by Benjen's reaction, she guessed they were very valuable, indeed. It's too much, Captain Trell. I cannot accept such a generous gift, even if it is in the exact form I desired. I thank you, though. Nonsense, she replied. I insist you take them, as they are not for you alone. Miss Catron saved the slippery eel in rather spectacular fashion, I'm told. I hope to repay part of that debt this day and satisfy my curiosity. I'm not certain I wish to see anyone rip the clouds from the sky, as Kenward described your attack on the Jean, but the description creates a vivid image. He's an excitable boy, and he tends to exaggerate, but he seemed sincere in this. 
she said, making the statement a question and looking at Catrin for confirmation. I would not have used those words, but I cannot say his description is inaccurate, Catrin replied as humbly as she could. Benjen and the others nodded in agreement, and Nora was duly impressed. Truly powerful indeed, she said. You have your mother's look about you. I hope you have a more conservative disposition than she did, given the power you wield. Captain Trell seemed to realize how harsh her words sounded. I'm sorry, my dear. That was insensitive of me. Sometimes I forget when I'm not speaking to a member of my crew. Please, forgive me. Your mother was a lovely young woman, and I was very sorry to hear of her passing. Catrin nodded in silent acceptance of the apology. Captain Trell broke the uncomfortable hush and changed the subject by asking Catrin if she had been able to read the books she sent with Pelivor. Catrin was downcast as she admitted she had grown frustrated with the old book, but Nora was sympathetic. Don't let it bother you. I've had several scholars examine that book, and they could all tell me very little about it. Mostly they said the writings were so old they were in a language that preceded high script. I cannot remember what they called it now, Nora said, and she looked thoughtful as she shuffled through her memories. It was a long time ago, but I believe one scholar thought this book told of the discovery of the Greatland. Catrin was unsure what good the information would do her, as she doubted she would ever be able to fully translate it, but she tucked the knowledge away. In a tangle of vines, Nat's long knife became wedged. Sweat dripped into his eyes while he yanked on the handle, trying to pull the blade free. Frustrated and tired, he prepared for a final yank when a hand rested on his shoulder. Nina moved his hand from the handle and stepped in front of him. Taking the handle, she moved it up and down as she pulled, and it soon slid free. Thank you, Nina. Nat said, letting her once again take the lead. Her long knife seemed to sail through the undergrowth, but when he had tried to lead, he found it impossible to do. Nina was a gift from the gods. Among the villagers, he was seen as something special. It was impossible to know what it was they really thought since he did not understand their language, and even worse, none would dare to speak to him. Even the village elders would only nod, shake their heads, or point. When they pointed, they almost always pointed to the same place, a high peak on the far side of the island, which was often obscured by clouds. It was there Nina would take him. As soon as Nat had shown the slightest interest in reaching the mountain, Nina had stepped forward, and the elders rushed them to start their journey. Since then, Nina had been leading him deeper into the jungle, and Nat began to wonder if he would ever leave it alive. Snakes, lizards, and even frogs were threats here. Whenever a threat was near, Nina would make a sharp hissing sound and point. Despite the danger, Nat did want to see what the villagers thought was so important about this mountain. Something was there, waiting for him. 
Whenever they gained a clear view of that narrow yet majestic spire, he would stand in awe, overwhelmed by a feeling of anticipation. Nat found himself staring at the still distant mountain and realized he'd stopped again. Nina had continued to clear a path through the underbrush, and he jumped at the sound of her sharp hiss. That concludes this episode of Inherited Danger. Thank you for listening. For the latest news and new releases, be sure to check out patioracket.com.